My next guest is currently a judge at the Ontario Court of Justice, primarily residing over criminal law cases. His journey, though, resembles that of many immigrants. He was the first in his family to attend post-secondary education. He has spent countless hours volunteering his time to help those less fortunate, and he continues to excel in his profession. Please welcome to the show, Justice Hafiz Amurshi. Hey. Hey. <laughs> How you doing? Good, good. Thank you for inviting me. We've known each other for a long time. Yes. yes. Yeah. For a really long time. Yeah, yeah, we have. <laughs> but before before you were, so do, what, do I call you Justice? Do we, like, what do, what, no, what no, do just call me Hafiz. Hafiz. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, or your honor, like I don't. No, know. no, call me a fees. Okay, yeah. Because yesterday I was driving in Scarborough, and I, I think I went through a red light, and I think I saw <laughs> there was cameras flashing. So I don't know if you can. We'll talk. We'll talk. We'll, we'll talk later, but <laughs> I, I'm not sure I can help you with that. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, does one ever dream or think about becoming a judge? Like, is that something that you were ever thinking about? As you were, like in high school, skipping classes and all that sort of stuff? Uh, well, it's funny. We, we know each other from high school yeah. or back in the day. But uh, listen, I mean, if you asked me a few years ago if, if I wanted to be a judge, it, it, it probably uh, wasn't something I'd really been thinking about. So uh, it was something I really put my mind to over the last three years. And so I've had sort of a, a pretty diverse career up until this point. So you know, is it something I dreamed about in law school? No, not really. No. Uh, but it's really sort of a, a more of a recent development and something I, uh, I wanted to do uh, over the last few years. Cool, cool. And I want to talk about sort of how, how you got into that and, and uh, how that works. And, um, you know, being in Toronto and Canada, where we're very heavily influenced by um, American TV shows, so whether that's uh, procedural dramas or, or, you know, whether it's, watching the news that comes from south of the border and, and sort of some of the differences and uh, misconceptions of the Canadian system versus what we see from, from down south. But um, you went to Western and you studied journalism. And did you get your master's? I did. Yeah. So is that something that you wanted to do? Um, so it, it, so I think it sort of made a reference to it. So I've, you know, I've had pretty diverse career. So I think when I finished you know, I'd finished law school and I, was, I had a couple of different interests. I, I was interested in criminal law, but I was also really interested in um, writing stories, drafting, journalism. That was sort of, uh, you know, um, something that I really sort of enjoyed as well. So um, it, it took me a while to sort of figure out what I was actually going to do. But yeah, so I went to Western um, and completed my master's in journalism. In fact, I spent uh, a, a, about a year and a half at the CBC uh, after I graduated. Um, what were you doing there? It was an editorial system, so I ran a uh, script up and down the yeah. stairs to the uh, <laughs> uh, to the on-air personalities, so and a, a little bit of producing as well. So that was sort of a, a give me an opportunity to get get a sense of what big media really looks like. Yeah. Uh, so I did that for a while, but in the end, um, you know, I, I think I was sort of drawn to the criminal law, passionate about it. So uh, for me, it was sort of a good fit. So, so, so walk me through that. How does that happen? How does one go from Masters, so not just journalism, because I thought okay, maybe he just did that before law school, like a pre-law thing. But I mean, you got your master's, so you had to invest some time and energy into that. Um, where where did law come from? So I f actually finished my master's before uh, before I finished law school. Um, so it was sort of part of the journey. So oh, okay, uh, okay. yeah, so I did I did my master's. Uh, I worked at the CBC all through law school. 
uh, ah. and when I was in law school. So I originally assumed I'd be a media lawyer of some sort. Okay, okay. Um, but I didn't find that particularly interesting. No. You know, it's uh, sometimes you find something that you like and, and you just stick with it. Yeah, so, so law was always sort of there in the back of your it mind. It was, yeah. Yeah, I remember going to, I don't know if you remember those, those high school sessions where maybe you're like in grade 11-ish and you go check out different professions. Um, and law was something, oh, yeah, I'm interested in it. And I remember going into a session um and found out how many years of school and i and i don't know I, I just wasn't in that frame of mind of wanting to do school a whole lot um and i said okay i gotta fix something else because i don't know if i'm if i'm cut out to do that many that many years of school but um that's amazing that that you sort of follow, followed through on that um tell me about law school like you, did you know what you wanted i know you, you sort of took a look at media um but you ended up doing I guess most of your work, in, would it be if you're in criminal? Yeah. So the way law school works is your first year, you're exposed to different areas of law, right? And so yeah. the idea is, you know, get a sense of what you like and what you're, what you're good at. Um, but you know what, Carm, like I knew that first day and that first sort of criminal law course that this was what I found interesting and what yeah. I was passionate about. So I found other areas of law interesting, sure, sure, but sure. I always turned back to the criminal law. It's what I ended up being passionate about. So mm -hmm. I think it was pretty fortunate. Um, and I, I think a lot of people go through law school not really knowing what they want to do when they're done. They know they want to practice, but they're not sure what exactly they want to do. That wasn't the case with me. I, I sort of knew pretty pretty early in that this was sort of uh, the area I was most interested in. Yeah. Now, what do most people do when they finish? They, From my understanding, they, they go, they find a firm and they article there. Is it, would that be fair? Yeah. So the the only articling is just sort of doing um, it's like doing an apprenticeship, right? So you got to yeah, you got to do that for uh, it's it's for about a year. Plus, you take some additional courses, and that's when you get your license. So ah, okay, okay. it's the prerequisite to your license. It's okay. sort of the apprenticeship. And that's called being called to the bar. Or something yes. Like that? Once once you're done your articling, you've written uh, you've written the courses, um, the exams. Um, you get uh, you get a license. Yeah. First, once you go to university. Obviously, the first one to get to to uh, to to get a law degree. Um, what what did the parents think? So you sort of did the whole. You did you did what most proper immigrants are supposed to do, right? <laughs> Either it's a law degree or it's a doctor or something like that. But tell me about your parents. Like they, they must have been like extremely proud. Yeah, I mean, listen, I I mean, I followed the the the, the immigrant script yeah. as as, <laughs> as much as I could. I mean, there are a couple of uh, you know uh, zigs and zags here and there, but. Um, you know, I mean, uh, listen, uh, they were, they were proud. My dad passed away, mm. um, when I was in university. So, you know, he never sort of, uh, saw me graduate and, okay. and become a lawyer. So you missed that part of his life. And I'm sure you would have been, you know, quite, uh, quite excited about uh, this particular position or this particular appointment. I mean, the thing is, you know, they left East Africa, right? So they, you know, both my mom and dad had pretty good lives back there from, from what I can tell. And, you know, they were happy. And, and the only reason they came here obviously was, uh, was for my future, so mm -hmm. you know that's that's a debt that's unpayable, really, Carm. So, sure. um, so yes, my mom's ecstatic, obviously, and yeah. and, and and proud. But uh, you know, I it, it's really a debt to them more than anything else. That's nice. Any of your other friends come to you and say, "Listen, I got this parking ticket." <laughs> All the time, Carm. <laughs> All the time. Um, you went overseas, right? When you when you after after you graduated, yeah. Uh, to, uh, what I found fascinating was one of the things that you did was that you you taught what is this thing you did in afghanistan you taught former soldiers how to like get different like work experience tell me about that yeah so um 
so I mentioned sort of zigs and zags. So after law school, yeah. I was also interested in doing some development work. I had an opportunity to, to go abroad. So I was in, I worked in Afghanistan. Uh, eventually got a job with, with the UN there. And they had this fantastic program, which is now a model in the world. And basically mm-hmm. what they did was uh, they've taken sort of ex-combatants. So people have known nothing but violence yeah. for their whole lives. And uh, they've taken up arms at sort of very, uh, at when they were very young and, and have been in sort of uh, involved with militias for, for decades. Um, so the idea was let's take their arms away. So that's the first step. Let's take their guns away. Yeah. But um, let's give them skills so they can reintegrate themselves back into the community. So the idea was, we'll give you incentives to, uh, to put down your arms, but we'll train you. So for example, we had uh, a training program for mechanics. We had a training program for veterinarians. We gave seeds and livestock uh, to ex-combatants so they can start farms and, and, and have some sort of income. So the whole idea was, you know what, the only way these people are gonna reintegrate is we give them some skills mm-hmm. and some ability to sort of make, uh, make a life of it and, and return the community. So it was fantastically successful. I mean, I can't speak to it now, but um, you know, thousands of, of, of soldiers or ex-soldiers sort of put down their arms uh, and rejoined, uh, rejoined their communities. And that program is now a model. It's been a model, so that, you know, they've done it in South Sudan, they've done it in the Central African Republic. So it really was sort of, you know, when I look back on sort of the, some of the more meaningful things I've done in my life, mm-hmm. that's right up there. So what, what made you, I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, that um, you didn't need necessarily need to have a law degree for, for some of this work that you were doing with, with, with the UN. What sort of um, enticed you to, uh, to do this sort of development work right after law school and not sort of, you know, let me start working at a law firm and start making my way up or whatever? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd always been interested in development, right? So, I mean, even as a kid, I mean, you know, I, I come from the developing world. It's, it's um, you know, I'm, I'm interested in things that go on uh, in the developing world and, you know, a, a particular interest in, in, in Central Asia, right? So, you know, when the opportunity arose, and I had always looked at it as a short-term opportunity. I was going to go abroad, but eventually I'd come back to Canada and, you know, uh, spend my life yeah. working as a lawyer. So, uh, and I knew my window was, was tiny, really. So that was basically it. I mean, I didn't, Karim, if I'm being honest, I didn't, I didn't really think about it too much. Yeah. There's an opportunity and I just left. Uh, but no, I knew I'd come back at some yeah. point. You also d- helped with the first democratic elections in Afghanistan. Tell me about that experience. Yeah, so it, sort of the same thing. It was with the UN. Um, so this is right after. We're talking about sort of 2004, 2005. And so if you recall, it's after 9-11. Mm. And so yeah. the Americans or a coalition of forces have now come into Afghanistan. And so for a relative period, it's not, to be fair, it's not, it's no longer the case, but for a short time in Afghanistan, they've had peace, right? So they've haven't, it's been nothing but sort of conflict and decades of war, but for a short window, they've had sort of a period of peace. So the idea was let's develop their democratic institutions so that there's some sort of democratic institutions in place uh, to build upon. So we put together this election. I was part of this organizing committee, but it was people from all over the world. And I didn't have any particular expertise, mm-hmm. but I happened to be there. Um, okay. And um, um, so my what I did was I just basically did communications. The tricky thing about elections communications is about 70 to 80% of the population is illiterate. So you can't sort of, and they have no experience with voting. So sure. You can't sort of hand out flyers or <laughs> pamphlets. The way you communicate is through images. 
Mm. Um, so, so all we did, and I, you know, we'd spend hours trying to sort of formulate what image we can convey to the average person. Say, you know what, this is why it's important to vote, and this is how you actually vote. So think about it. You you have no experience with voting. Um, you know, it's sort of a foreign concept to you, to be fair. You're in a remote village and all of a sudden an election comes. You have to spend a lot of time explaining that to the population. So part of my job was sort of just explaining that. So, you know, it, again, it was sort of a wonderful experience. But I remember one of the, the, the challenges we had, Garm, was um, so there's a place in Afghanistan called the Wakan Corridor, right? Okay. So it's the northeast Afghanistan. And basically it's a finger that sticks out into Tajikistan and China. But the bottom line is it is one of the most remote areas in the world, right? And the whole idea was how do we get people in these remote villages that mm -hmm. you can't access by road or by flight or any way, how are we going to get them the ballots and how are we going to explain sort of the, the voting on. process? Yeah, what's going on? So we sort of racked our minds for a really long time and then we came up with sort of this rather simple solution. They basically sent a convoy of donkeys right. with uh, with ballot papers um, through this walk on corridor to these people in remote villages, you know, sort of these these caravans of donkeys. <laughs> and uh, but I still remember that's one of the images that, you know, when I think about that time was sort of in these caravans with ballot papers going to these remote villages uh, to spread democracy. So, you know, that was sort of something that really stuck with me. That's crazy. Um you, you must have sort of, uh, I don't know if you, did, did you also come to appreciate, you know, with, with your background and what you studied with law, some of the uh, legal institutions here and sort of what they may have started developing uh, in Central Asia? I'm, I'm curious whether, whether you sort of noticed the, the, the differences and, and gained an appreciation that way. I mean, significance are, I mean, so the differences are significant, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if, if anything, they're really sort of hard to compare. But for if, if anything, it's sort of reinforced in my mind that the institutions, the legal institutions we have in here in Canada are well-developed, they're strong, they're rigorous. Yeah. And so, you know, you don't necessarily have a sense of how your legal system stacks up. And to be fair, it's not fair to compare a Canadian legal system with Afghanistan. But, you know, I was in the region, so I was able to compare it to a lot of different legal systems. But we're exceedingly fortunate. Um, that we have a legal system here that balances individual rights and protects civil liberties, mm -hmm. uh, but also protects the public. Um, and that's a really hard balance to get, but we do we do a good job of it here. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that Kabul is literally if one of the oldest cities um, in the world. So there's, there's a lot of history, a lot of culture there. Um, are, is, is there a type of legal framework um, that has been established over the years or... Has that not been, I don't know, important or, or, or anything like that? Well, I, I think the problem is, is because there were so many decades of conflict, mm. th they couldn't build any institutions, right? So w is there a sort of an indigenous legal history and culture in Afghanistan? Of course there is. There okay. is it's across the Islamic world. But, you know, when it comes to conflict, you can't develop anything, right? I mean, it's mm. all about sort of survival, housing, sort of shelter, food on your plate, right? So. Yeah. Those are institutions that just crumbled over decades. So when I got there, it was basically starting right from scratch. Starting from scratch. Yeah. And then that's hard, right, to develop. So w was there? So when did? Is there a what we know as a constitution, or a charter there in Afghanistan now? And was that important in, in the development of uh, of their legal system and of 
the you know democracy and things like that? So I mean, at the time, no, there wasn't. There is now. So there yeah. is a. So okay. they do have. They have a functioning parliament. Yeah. Um, there is uh, a free or or basically free electoral process there, uh, and so the parliament there has passed laws. It's passed a constitution. Um, so there's a constitution uh, in Afghanistan now. Okay, cool. So coming back to Canada, what was sort of your first gig or first first thing that you started working with? Uh, no, I mean, listen, I, I mean, I came back. I'd been abroad for four years. Oh and, wow. And, yeah, I mean, nobody remembered who I was. <laughs> so I had to really, you know, start all over again, and it was, you know, it was it was a difficult process. But um, I, I basically started uh, uh, out on my own. Uh, so I put okay. up a shingle, and I was a I was a criminal defense lawyer. So you know, I took uh, only criminal cases, but I took you know whatever whatever came in the door and whatever yeah. I could do to sort of you know pay the rent and uh, make a go at it. Wow, when did you start volunteering with was it with the Flemington? What was that that st- volunteer work? Yeah, so Flemington's uh, so Flemington has a legal aid clinic. That's the okay. Thorncliffe Flemington area. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, but they service mostly you know refugees and new Canadians. So mm-hmm. I'd uh, done some volunteer work with them for, for a number of years in terms of access to justice and yeah, yeah. helping immigrants sort of access basic, you know, uh, uh, legal resources. Yeah. So as, as you sort of set up your own shop and, and defended criminals, um, what, what sort of, I don't know, defense or legal work were you doing for them? Was it just guys off the street with parking tickets or, um, you know, what sort of work uh, sort of consumed most of your time. No, I mean at that point, I mean I, I, you know, I took whatever came in the door, right? Okay. So, um, you know, I, I had so you to, weren't picky I, I had to pay right. No, I had to be picky, right? So, yeah. no, I wasn't, okay. I wasn't particularly picky. I mean, if it's an area law, I, I didn't know much about. It. I wouldn't take the case out of fairness to them. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I'd always been interested in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and okay. that particular litigation. So yeah. that had always attracted me and. Um, there's a particular area in, in charter litigation called search and seizure. So, for example, okay. you know, police just can't come to your home, right? They need an authorization. So a judge or a justice of the peace needs to sign off on a legal document, right? Okay. And there, there's all these legal issues surrounding that. So I always found sort of search and seizure issues really interesting to me. Okay. And so when I could, I'd sort of try and sort of seek out those kind of sort of interesting arguments around, uh, around those charter particular rights. Yeah. So how does a lawyer who hasn't been in the country for four years set up a business? I'm assuming you don't just sit in the office and wait for the phone to ring or wait for someone to, to see your sign and say, oh, I just happen to need a lawyer. Um, like, how do you drum up business? Oh, it's grunt work. It's just yeah. a lot of grunt work. So, I mean, basically, you're just out there. You're, you know, you're, you're uh, a lot of it comes from word of mouth. So, okay. you know, other lawyers that vouch for you and you vouch for them, Yeah. Um, you know, as opportunity to sort of, you know, uh, obviously the South Asian community was uh, always looks for or always needs advocates that either speak their language mm-hmm. or understand their particular issues. So that was obviously uh, a community that uh, I was able to access as well. But, you know, it's basically, you know, just hard work drumming up business yeah. like anything else. Was it did you ever question yourself? Like, why the heck did I decide to do Oh, this? every day, Carl. Yeah, every day. So what made you what made you what made you push on? Because it's one thing to say, heck, I'm a lawyer. I've got I've got the certificate. I've got the degree. I, my parent, my you know, my mom is proud of me. Uh, my friends, you know, see me in high regard. Um, but damn, this is hard work. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's a struggle. It's you know, it's a struggle every day, and you always sort of question whether you've made the right decisions and choices, right? Yeah. But for me, in the end, I really just enjoy the area of law, right? Mm-hmm. So if I, I think the issue was if I didn't enjoy it as much as I did, I probably. 
um, I probably would have done something else because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the pay wasn't that great. Mm-hmm. Uh, the clients could be difficult at times and, and sometimes wonderful as well. Uh, and sometimes the work was meaningful and sometimes it wasn't. Right. So yeah. um, y- you need to be motivated by something. And for me, it was I just enjoyed that area of law. Yeah. When did you how many years were you a what is it, do they call it a public defender? Is that, is that the proper or am I using an American term well, right now? <laughs> no, so I was <laughs> so I was a criminal defense lawyer. Criminal defense lawyer. Uh, okay. And then I joined uh, I joined the federal crowns office. So I was a prosecutor. Okay. Uh, for about seven or eight years. So the second half of my career. Okay. Uh, was on the other side as yeah. a, as a prosecutor. A different way. They have different backgrounds. Um, and so um, in the end, nothing is you know I can't say for this particular offense this should be the result versus versus another. So no, nothing is really black and white. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I'm gonna come back to all this. I find it very fascinating. Right. But, but so you're 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 a prosecutor, uh, seven years, I think you said. A- at what point, like for yourself, did you go? I- I'd love to be a justice, and 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 why was that something that that appealed to you? Yeah. So I made the decision about three years ago. Okay. Um. So and it's listen, Garm. It's a long process. It's a long involved process. Uh, so about three years ago, but you know, I, as I mentioned, you know, I was passionate about criminal law. So you know, here's an opportunity uh, to be able to work in in criminal law really for the rest of my career. But I'd always been interested in public service as well, right? So mm. whether it was you know my work with Flemington Community Legal Services and access to justice issues, or my work as a Crown Attorney as a public servant, or even when I was in Afghanistan with the UN, mm-hmm. it's a career devoted to the public service, right? So here is a real opportunity to devote really the rest of my life yeah. uh, to working in the public interest. So for, th- for me, that was particularly attractive and, and sort of a motivating quality. Um, so yeah, so I put the application in three years ago and, and you know, went through the process. So what is, uh, like, I don't know if you're allowed to, you know, show us under the covers of this, but what's, what, what is the process like? Like, what do you have to do? Is it, are you writing an exam or do you have to, uh, you know, is, is there someone that you've got to make happy? Um, you know, how does one choose a judge? Um, I think you're in Brampton. Is that right? I'm in Peel. Uh, in Peel. Like, like, how does that happen? Like, why Peel? You know, all this sort of stuff. I'm really interested. Uh, so it's, you know, the, the process is pretty transparent. Okay. Um, so long gone are the days where, you know, you get appointed to be a judge because you know somebody. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so it's no longer who you know, but it's really what you know. It's a merit-based process mm-hmm. through and through. So the way it works, at least in Ontario, is there's a committee. Okay. Um, but what's interesting about the committee and really one of the m- most sort of wonderful aspects about this committee is it's not really composed of just judges and lawyers. In fact, it has members of the community on it. So there's about oh. 13 or 14 people on the committee. Okay. More than half are lay people. And when I say that, it's the nurse from Windsor. It's the teacher from Hamilton. It's people from the community who are on the committee along with you know a bunch of lawyers and judges. And they together vet the applications, select uh, a short list. Uh, and once that happens, sort of you come in for an interview. And after that, uh, three or four names are then um, passed up to the attorney general. So okay. the attorney general can only select Out of what's been from done. three or four names, from the names that have been vetted and passed up to him or her. Yeah. And from there, they'll make a decision. Um, but the reason they do it that way is it. So back in, you know, back in the old days, it was really about sort of patronage. 
sure. right? So it's like, you know, it's who you know. And, you know, are you affiliated with, you know, the liberals or the conservatives in some way or another? Or do you have a particular political ideology? But all of that's gone now because, you know, you, you have to go through this sort of rather vigorous vetting process. Mm -hmm. And in the end, the attorney general can only pick from the list. So they can't sort of go outside of the list and pick their friend or pick someone from their particular writing. So that's why they sort of have that process in place. And that committee is independent. So um, you cannot, no one can really exert any political influence over the committee. Interesting. Um, so you're a judge now. Um, and, and getting back to this question about black and white uh, and, and different things, one, one question I had is, um, is opinion and, 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 and personal bias. Um, how does that play a role? Does it play a role um, you know, when, you, when you're coming down with, with a decision or a judgment? Um, you know, what, is what are the important factors that, that, uh, that, that uh, make you make you know, a, a particular judgment? I mean, uh, so uh, I'm only human, right? Judges are human, right? And we don't you know, possess any sort of extraordinary wisdom, right? Yeah. I mean, we're guided by the law okay. as we understand it and our own experiences, but we're also draw upon our own perspectives and life experiences as well, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, clearly I've had some life experiences and they're going to impact the decisions I make and, yeah. that's, uh, and that's fair and that's reasonable. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I, I think you have to sort of, you know, check yourself. Mm. Uh, you've got to be cautious. Um, you know, uh, I think most judges are cautious not to shoot from the hip. So what, what that means is, you know, they'll take a decision home. They'll think about it. Uh, they'll do some research. They might speak to their colleagues, you know, but it's usually sort of a considered decision. And that's the whole idea, right? I mean, they've mm -hmm. got to consider all of the evidence. Um, but, you know, I, I think we have some great legal education. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a particular recognition of what's, uh, what sort of forbidden biases or reasoning sometimes can encroach in sort of your decision making. So, I, you know, I, I think there's generally an appreciation of, of what needs to go into uh, a good decision uh, and what, uh, what you should leave out of it. Although there has been, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, decisions where, where witness credibility or, or complaining credibility does come into play. Um, so, I don't know. I don't know if I'm uh, wh what I'm asking here. Um, so is th is there a so someone's not that doesn't agree with your decision? Let's say um, the next step would be appeal, appeals court. Is it would that be would that be correct? That's correct. And and would it be, and, and is there a um, is there certain uh, like only certain cases or certain instances that you can that you can appeal or. Is there like how does that work? How do, how does an appeal process work, and what does a lawyer appeal? Can they appeal the reasoning behind a decision, or is there certain things only? Um, it, it 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 depends is sort of the short answer, but okay. it, in simple terms, it's 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 a pretty broad right to appeal. So mm -hmm. you know uh, they can appeal the fact that I got the law wrong. Okay. I, I misapprehended the facts. I didn't understand the facts. Okay. So the, any conclusions I, I drew weren't based on sort of the facts that came out in trial. So yeah. there are a number of different areas um, that uh, that my particular decision can be appealed. So uh, there is an appeal process, and we have that in place just for that very reason. I mean, we're yeah. not we're not perfect, and sometimes 
we will get it wrong or sometimes we get it right and uh, a court of appeal will confirm that in fact that was sort of the right determination yeah um you talked about earlier that um, you know you, you sort of take into account the person in front of you, and you know things aren't always black and white. Um, where where you work uh, in Peel, massive immigrant massive uh, immigrant population. Um, English might not be, and in most cases, is not a first language. Um, people's backgrounds and, and histories um, and life has been very different. Um, than you and I who've sort of grown up here. Um, how, does, how does that come into play for, for a judge? Or, or is that allowed to come into play for a judge when it comes to um, rendering a decision? Well, I mean, it, it depends at what point, right? So, I mean, I think, uh, I think when it comes to sentencing, for example, where I've made a finding of guilt or they've uh, pled guilty and taken sure. responsibility, yeah. their background is absolutely relevant. Is ab- it is relevant. It's relevant. And it's, yeah. it's, in fact, it's vital that I have as much information as I possibly can about their particular circumstances mm-hmm. and what's brought them uh, uh, to me uh, and what set of circumstances. So uh, in that way, yes, no, it's, it's certainly relevant. Yeah. I don't know if you're able to give me a specific example or sort of hypothesize on, uh, on, on, on an example on, on, on what would, you know, you might have thought, you know, if this was a different person or different set of circumstances you might give them x sentence uh, but because of these these particular set of circumstances they're getting x minus sort of a sentence sure so for example a first-time offender okay. right yeah, yeah someone who doesn't have a criminal record um, that's where you want to show uh, some restraint or a good deal of restraint yeah. right um, and you know jail is a blunt instrument instrument it's not always the answer it's appropriate in certain situations um, but you know, it, I think when, for example, when it comes to a first offender, you want to you want to recognize other particular tools, and the idea behind criminal law is not just to punish, and, and that's an important part of criminal law, mm-hmm. but there is another significant component in sentencing called rehabilitation, right? So eventually, the idea is this: these people, even if they go to jail, are going to have to return to our communities. So let's ensure that they have the skills, abilities, and tools. Uh, to be able to reintegrate and be sort of meaningful and uh, people who can provide, you know, benefits to the community moving forward. So, you know, the perspective just can't be we're going to throw them in jail and let's not worry about it because eventually they're going to come out. So there's always an emphasis um, in almost every sentencing hearing um, on rehabilitation and and what tools we can provide that particular offender uh, to assist them in in their reintegration. Yeah. There's going to probably be a hundred more questions that come into my mind from this, but let me let me sort of take this in a different direction. Um, the impact of media, um, and in media, you know, I'm, I'm talking. I, I, yeah, let me let me take it this way. Um, when when the media reports on decisions, uh, and I guess you can only tell me about decisions that that, that you've made and how it impacts you, but um, you, you make a decision whether it's about guilty, not guilty, or whatever the case is, or or a sentencing decision. Um, or you know what, um, um, you know what things are allowed to be uh, to be brought as uh, you know whether it's a person being a witness or evidence and things of that nature, and media might report on it, and and you might have a, a columnist give their opinion on it. Um, does that weigh on you? Does that are 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 you told by your peer listen stop reading the papers? Or I'm really curious how that impacts you. 
So, I mean, I, I haven't really had any high-profile cases where, okay. you know, <laughs> it's something for me to sort of think about. But, you know, I, I, I think, you know, as a judge, and, and all judges are, are you know, we're, we're pretty steadfast. We, we have a particular job. We have to apply uh, the law as we understand it to the facts. And, you know, um, uh, there might be some media attention attached to it. Uh, but in the end, you know, I, I think for the vast majority of judges, it really does have some very little impact, if any. Let's talk about TV media, so television shows, movies, and things like that. Is being a judge as glamorous as, as some of the movies show? No, Carmen, not at all. Do you, you have that nice office in the back? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not. Listen, I, I think the public might have a certain perception of it. What it really is is just it's a lot of a lot of hours, uh, a lot of late nights, um, grappling with difficult decisions. So. Uh, no, it's not glamorous. It's not glamorous uh, at no. all. When you watch TV, sh- I don't know. Do have you ever watched Suits? Of course. Yeah, <laughs> of yeah, course. Yeah. Okay. What well, is it? Just is it all glamour? Is is there any truth to any of of, of this? Um, no, I mean nothing resolves itself <laughs> in in fifty five minutes, minutes, right? <laughs> so uh, I wish it was that easy, but no. I mean, usually the, the legal process is you know it's it's can be complicated mm-hmm. and. Sometimes justice will take a long time. So, yeah. uh, and there's not usually a, a sort of a neat resolution to things. I, I remember, and this this will give away my age. I remember Hill Street Blues when that was on, and, and more recently The Wire. And um, is and, and pe- the reason that you know a lot of people love these shows. And one of the things I, that I used to hear was, um, you know, if you asked a, a, a cop back, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, and you ask them, you know, there's all these cop shows. Which one is the most realistic? And they would say Hill Street Blues. Um, is there a a movie, a TV show that you have seen and go, yeah, that's probably the closest that it's ever come? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Nothing, no. eh? No. I mean, I, I, the practice of law, and, and it it's, it's can be dry, it can be complicated. Yeah. Um, it takes a lot of work, so no, uh, no, nothing, don't, don't nothing really comes to mind. <laughs> but just in there's, terms of sort of no glamour. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just in terms of sort of you know pure entertainment or, or you know, uh, a show that's really done a good job of trying to be realistic is is, is, is of course The Wire, right? So mm. sort of a classic television show that you know they've clearly done their research. Yeah. Uh, in terms of sort of you know drug investigations and mm-hmm. gangs and and all of that, so you know that's that's realistic at least in terms of. I, I can imagine in terms of some of the portrayals in, in, in the wire, but um, you know, usually it's it's uh, it's not reflected in, in the media. Have you has, has has anyone in court ever said something that I know my rights? I, I you know, I'm 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 eligible for A, B, and C, and you're thinking in your head, you just watched a TV show from the states, or you know, you just you just saw some um, some court case that they talked about on CNN. I'm curious if that's ever popped up in, in court with you. Well, I mean, a lot of people will Google things, right? So um, that's sort of the their first their first resource. But you know, uh, like anything, um, in the court will always emphasize uh, that you need counsel. Uh, the issues are too complicated. Mm. Um, you're at a, a can be at a distinct disadvantage uh, of, of when you don't have counsel. So that's why it's also sort of from a broader perspective a real access to justice issue, right? So more and more we have people in, in my courts that don't have a lawyer, right? So they're representing themselves yeah. um, and there's multiple pitfalls when that occurs. So, uh, you know, that's that's a real issue. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know if you can speak. Tell me if you can't, but I, I don't know if you can speak to the the you know access to to law or access to legal help as it pertains to um, to immigrants, people of color versus um, you know people, quote unquote Canadians that have lived here for generations and stuff. Um, I'm I'm curious if you have thoughts ar around that. I mean, there's always barriers to, to access to justice, especially if you're a new Canadian or, um, you know, if you're an immigrant. So if you don't speak the language, that's that's a barrier because you're just not getting the information. You don't know what resources are available um, in the community. You might also come from a cultural tradition. And I remember this when I worked at Fleming Community Legal Services where people don't want to exert their rights. So their landlord's not treating them well, uh, but they'll just take it. Right. So they've been evicted, although they have certain legal rights to stop the eviction. Um, or at least, you know, stop the process um, or, you know, they're in difficult um, relationships and they don't know that there's a way out. There's a legal recourse in, in certain situations. So, you know, so it's a combination of, you know, not speaking the language, accessing the resource and cultural traditions uh, that sort of at times will impact people's decision making. Are there, I don't know if you've ever given any, any thought to solving some of these issues and, and, and is there a way to uh, empower those who feel they don't have any recourse? I mean, it's systemic. It's really difficult, uh, if I'm being honest. And, and I only know this from working at the legal aid or volunteering with the legal aid clinic for, for, for a number of years. And the only thing you can do is, is um, it's through uh, legal education, uh, telling people that you know there are resources in the community that you can access. Um, and that you can access in your language uh, from people who understand your particular cultural background and, and some of your particular challenges. That's really that's really important. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, it's 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 a challenge moving forward for for you know some of these vulnerable populations. What what di what what main differences are there in terms of you know what we're exposed to on television? You know the the news. Um, which, which you know, good or bad, is, is heavily influenced by what happens, especially these days south of the border, versus the, um, you know, what what is actually the the Canadian experience, uh, in in terms of the legal differences. That's a really big question. So <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I mean, we have, uh, we're, we're fortunate here. I mean, we have a long legal tradition. Uh, it's based on the common law. Um, obviously, there's there's origins. Uh, from the United Kingdom, kingdom, but uh, what we have is uniquely Canadian. So our emphasis on the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is uniquely Canadian. You won't find, I mean, lots of countries have constitutions, but you won't find a document like the Charter almost anywhere else in the world. So that's something we can be proud of. Mm -hmm. So there are things that are uniquely Canadian that occur in courtrooms or arguments or, or, or concerns that we have um, that you won't see reflected anywhere else. Do we have TV cameras yet? Do you have any, are you allowed to give an opinion on that? What are your thoughts on <laughs> Well, no, I mean, so there's a, <laughs> there's a camera at the Supreme Court of Canada, so you can watch okay. any Supreme Court of Canada hearing uh, that you like. So that is... Uh, so that's there. So the, yeah, so that's, um, that's televised or uh, accessible, uh, but nothing else is. Yeah. If, there's, if there's one thing that you want people to know about the justice system in Canada, um, whether it's something that they might not have thought about or whether there's a misconception that people have. What would be that one thing? Well, I mean, I, 
I think it's important to note that um, people work very hard in the criminal justice system to ensure that uh, you have a fair trial. And so, you know, it's not just my obligation as a trial judge. Obviously, I, I need to be fair and impartial and ensure um, that the particular accused uh, fair trial rights are protected. Uh, but it's also an obligation for the Crown Attorney, the prosecutor, and the defense lawyer. So, you know, the system only works as well as it does. And, of course, there's challenges, but it only works as well as it does um, through sort of the involvement and commitment of all the parties. And, you know, I think that's something that um, uh, we can be particularly proud of. Nice. Final question I have for you. It's um, maybe it won't, but let me ask you this. Have you ever, you know, you, 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 you've shown through, you know, the, the, the 40 plus years that you've been on this earth, you've done a lot of volunteer work, a lot of selfless um, service overseas and, and locally as well. Um, have you ever given thought to what's next after being a judge, uh, specifically when it comes to politics? No, I think this is the end of the road for this me. <laughs> yeah, this would be it. So I've, you know, I'm, I'm. Karim, I can tell you I'm extremely fortunate. Yeah. Um, you know, I wake up every morning, I pinch myself, I get to do something I, I love. I get to interact with people from, from you know, a cross-section of the community. So, you know, I, in terms of dream jobs, I have it. Awesome. Hafiz, man, thanks so much. Thanks, Karim.